Welcome to Old Paths. This is the podcast where we discuss historical theology, confessional theology, and my name is Pastor Benjamin Hicks. I'm a pastor serving here in London, Ontario, and I'm joined by Michael. How are you doing today, Michael? Doing well, Benjamin. Glad to be here. Well, today we're going to be wrapping up, I hope, our um, biography of William Ames, and hopefully next week, beginning um, if uh, we're continuing on with that subject next time, we'll be launching into the uh, first part of Ames's Marrow. But I think this uh, this part of this series is important, just laying down some of this historical context. And uh, for those of you who've been listening in, um, been very encouraged to Church to see. I see we've got some listeners in Germany. So if you're listening in on Germany, then we were appreciative of, of you tuning in. And uh, definitely you can um, message me um, and uh, I'll include uh, an email in the description of this video. I'd love to hear if the podcast is blessing you. But um, today we're going to uh, pick up where we left off. You might recall that uh, we've summarized the uh, biography of William Ames up to the point where he's been forced out of his position at uh, the Franeker uh, University there. And um, yeah, and so for that, for that reason, um, or he's uh, nearing the end of his life there in, in, um, in Holland, and he's going to be transitioning now towards uh, uh, seeking a new life in the new world and yet we're going to see that doesn't uh, work out in exactly the way he planned. And so this is the conclusion of his life. But the uh, what we're going to be seeing is that the Lord has used uh, his lasting legacy to inform the church today as they benefit from his teaching. So uh, just picking up, uh, if you're following on along with Meet the Puritans, um, this is at the very bottom of page 43 at the bottom there. So I'm going to read that paragraph. In 1632, Ames accepted an invitation from his friend Hugh Peter to join him in co-pastoring the Church of English Refugees at Rotterdam. Ames was attracted to the post because of Peter's vision of a covenant-centered congregation that strove for a purge membership of regenerate believers who truly practiced their faith. Peter also wanted Ames to help the church develop a Puritan college at Rotterdam. So here you see, after some uh, some difficult controversies in his uh, previous career, he's re-entering more of a pastor, pastoral ministry. And I've, obviously you have uh, here the... Um, the authors of this work are summarizing his his motivation at this point, and the desire that he shares in common with his uh, his brother Hugh Peter is that uh, he be part of a um, covenant centered congregation that strove for a purge membership of regenerate believers. Now, um, maybe it's just uh, worthwhile reflecting on that point, a uh, covenant-centered congregation. Now, this would be speaking of uh, covenant theology in particular. And um, maybe I'll just ask this question of you, Michael. What, what do you think it's getting out there where it's talking about a covenant-centered congregation? And what would you say is the relationship with that to his, his vision of the church? 
I think this is a description of independentism or congregationalism in which there was a covenant made usually expressly between the members of the congregation. You still see it today in many Baptist churches. It's a mark of independent polity. And the conception is that each individual church is its own unit and it comes together by a covenant agreement of the members in making that covenant agreement, the members still retain the power of ruling in the church. They may delegate it to officers, elders, but it's, but, um, the, the congregation itself has the power of governing and there may be connections to other congregational churches, but there's no necessary or biblical um, structure as in Presbyterianism mm. and whatever meetings there are at local beyond the local church are for advice and they don't come with the authority, the same authority anyway, as that of the local governing body. Very well described, Michael. I think that's very helpful in, in getting at uh, one of the differences between that congregationalist or independent uh, approach to church government, which characterized some of the Puritans and, and the Presbyterian form of government. And this might be a case where um, uh, where you can, you can educate me. Um, I, I see that very prominent in, in writings like John Owen um, and other people who are coming from that stream of things more the the congregationalist stream um when uh when it comes to presbyterian polity would they see that there is a covenant between the members at all or is it just that the emphasis is is different so that that's not the the locus or the the most basic um uh the starting point of the authority structure from what I understand, the idea of making a covenant as a local church is not forbidden in historic Presbyterian writing, but it's not necessary. It's not part of the essence of a church. You can have a church without it. I've read the Maastricht, for example. He says that every church, local church has a covenant, but sometimes it's implicit rather than explicit. I suppose a Presbyterian could, could get on board with that. Presbyterianism does not deny the importance or the um, significance of the local church or the duties that are owed one member to another. But there is another element that's was given in what you read that's closely connected to it. This idea of a covenant community assumes the concept of a regenerated church membership. Hmm. I think as you put it, the, or as he put it, there's a purged membership. Mm. So we've got all the chaff out. We've got all the weeds pulled from the field, even though Christ told us, you remember, not to do that, mm. <laughs> lest you pull up the wheat as well. And though that passage could be misapplied, it doesn't take away discipline. It doesn't take away proper civil punishments mm. for spiritual crimes either. It is a warning from the Savior that we can be too careful with church discipline and the idea of a purged or totally regenerate church membership is a form 
of ecclesiastical tyranny. And Presbyterianism is, is much sounder on that. So in classic Presbyterianism, though, honestly, American Presbyterianism tends more towards congregationalism in this matter, but historic Presbyterianism viewed all that was necessary for membership in the church to be a profession of faith and a life that doesn't contradict it. Hmm. And they knew very well that such a profession and a blameless life could coexist with unregeneracy hmm. and does in many. Hmm. But convinced from scripture that that's all that's required and convinced furthermore from scripture that God's plan for the covenant of grace is that many are only merely outward members and yet still true members and mm. still subjects of baptism and of church membership and church discipline. We ought not try to make the church holier than God intended it. Mm. That, that's, a, that's a very important um, point, Michael. And it really goes to the heart of, of so much discussion about what is the nature of the church. Now, um, yeah, we're going to see that, that Ames's theology has a great impact upon New England. And what you see is that in New, in New England and in, in the, the New World in America, um, independency tends to uh, be very prominent. And often what you see is a movement towards a Baptist ecclesiology um, to where that principle is taken sort of to its logical endpoint, which is that the visible church of the called, right? The, those people who gather on Sunday and the invisible church of those who are elect and regenerate, there's really no difference between them. They're, they're coterminant as it were. And um, that's kind of the tradition I grew up with because the, the, the new England independency uh, and the, the Baptist churches of Atlantic Canada where I, where uh, I grew up, Historically, there's content, there's continuity there, and uh, by the what I would what I would observe about that tradition is that across generations, some some of the the tensions begin to really emerge. So, let's let's say there's someone listening and saying, "What could possibly be wrong with saying we should have a church of only regenerate? Isn't that the basis of our deepest communion and fellowship of people who?" Uh, have a true living faith in the Lord Jesus. Well, amen. That that is the basis of true communion fellowship among among the people of God. And there's an absolute difference if you're if you're if you're lacking spiritual life, if you have no love for the Lord, then um, it's 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 a dramatic thing. But um, what you see is is exactly as you say. In any gathering, any visible visible uh, gathering of uh, professing Christians and their families, there's not yet been a pure church. In I, I believe, right now, maybe it, um, maybe that that's a bit too strong. That maybe there you could, in principle, have a gathering of only believers. But in general, the 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 pattern of the New Testament and the pattern of the Old Testament certainly is that there's always a mixed group. There is always wheat and tares. And the danger is that when you when you really have this category of the visible church and the the invisible church and the visible church are the same, then in my experience, what winds up happening is you address everyone as though they're converted, 
and you really have not much to say to the to the unconverted. And I know that can sometimes take different forms, but uh, in my experience, that that often tends to be the default. Um, so it's, as you say, it's unrealistic and um, and and can lead to to some serious problems uh, in just how you're you're pastoring people. Um, when I uh, when I joined the Reformed churches, especially the tradition that I'm a part of now, there's a lot more of an explicit recognition that the visible church is a mixed body, and I think that that is is much more the biblical model, as you say. Um, I think that the 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 tension can sometimes be that the profession of faith in Christ can sometimes get um, downgraded a bit in some of, in some of the churches to where. Um, it can, uh, because there's a recognition that it's a, a mixed body, then almost nothing is asked of the one who would make a profession of faith. And, um, yeah, I think that, um, historically perhaps that was even more of a problem to where people would even call it a profession of truth, not a profession of faith, where you could have people who flatly say, I'm, uh, I have no love for the Lord. I'm unconverted. And let me go through the profession of faith, be allowed to enter into the membership of the church and so forth. And then um, with that comes an expectation that you'll never attend the Lord's Supper, or at least not for, for many years, even though you've made a profession of faith, right? So I think that you can see how um, how that maybe there, there's tensions on, on, on that side as well. And what I do appreciate about the independency of independence, particularly those who are very careful, like John Owen, and I think also like William Ames, to recognize that while the goal is a regenerate membership, there's also the real the the means by which you you pursue that is is important. I think that is through discriminating preaching, through um, through a proper application of church discipline. I think that. We do need to, um, at, at the end of the day, say that the church exists to call the Lord's elect. That's the, that's its purpose of the world, right? If it has another purpose, then I don't I, then I don't know what it is from the scripture. Anyway, those, those are some general thoughts, Michael. Any response to some of the things I've said? No, I don't think I have much to add. We could go on at length, I'm sure. We could, yeah. And I, and I, Presbyterian government. It's a useful topic. Church government is important. Absolutely is, Michael. And I think that as we've said in the past in this series, I think it's fruitful that we set aside a whole topic for that. But I think this is um, just uh, good for understanding some of the things that are going on. This is uh, Ames's orientation and it's going to have, or his uh, conviction about ecclesiology. So it's going to feature prominently as we consider his work. So continue reading here. In late summer, 1633, Ames finally headed south to Rotterdam. In the fall, the Mass River breached its banks, and Ames, already unwell, became even more ill after his house was flooded. He died of pneumonia on November 11 at the age of 57 in the arms of Hugh Peter. To the end, he remained firm in faith and triumphant in hope. What an, what an incredible life, um, you know, the Lord led him through many different challenges, many different circumstances, and uh, used him um, 
to really be an encouragement to the Lord's people when you consider starting under the uh, instruction of uh, William Perkins there in England, being uh, being uh, basically banished from his own country, moving to the Netherlands, gaining a reputation for refuting error, becoming a theological advisor, the Council of Dor, being barred from office in the in the teaching ministry, and then in spite of that, having another teaching office, then being evicted from that, and then heading to um, to the new world. It's 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 quite a way to end. Um, but you see that the most important thing there is that to the very end, he remained firm in his faith and triumphant in hope. Um, ultimately, he could have had all those other credentials to his to his name, but. Um, the lack, the one thing is ne- that is needful would have would have made everything else worthless. Ultimately, he, it's a good word for I think ourselves as well, Michael, that we could be handling, you know, the best of theology or handling the scriptures themselves. But uh, it's important we appropriate that for ourselves personally as well. That's right. Yeah. Now. Um, what you see now is that uh, the rest of this chapter is going to be looking at some of the long-term impact of his life. So I think it's important that we pay attention to this as well, um, because this is really setting the stage for why it is that we're having this discussion. Uh, obviously, many godly men have uh, had similar careers as William Ames, but what we're really studying is his body of work, which continues to help the church today. So let's uh, carry on here. Um, shortly before his death, Ames seriously considered joining his friend John Winthrop in New England, but God had another new world in mind for him. Four years after Ames's death, his wife and children went to live in the Puritan settlement of Salem, Massachusetts. They brought Ames's library with them, which formed the nucleus nucleus of the original library for Harvard Harvard College, though fire later destroyed most of the books. I suppose that might be a surprise to some of our um, listeners, Michael, if they know anything about Harvard, that it was originally a Christian institution and indeed um, one founded by Reformed men. Um, I don't believe that's its reputation today. No. No. And uh, you kind of see how how far the American nation has fallen from from uh, its beginnings as a nation that once followed the Lord, right? Right. Same similar story with many other colleges. Yeah. But there you have uh, his wife and children. They they head out to Massachusetts. It's actually where my own uh, family. Um, can trace their own lineage back. Apparently, the first person in North America with my family name um, was, um, yeah, uh, in that part of the world around around that time. So, it's uh, it's an interesting connection for myself as well. I'm going to carry on here, reading, uh, focusing now a bit more on his own uh, legacy here. We read Ames's influence was perhaps greatest in New England where his marrow, that is the marrow of theology, became the primary text at Harvard and was often read and quoted throughout the colonies. 
Then two, his writings on church issues laid the groundwork for non-separating congregation congregationalism in New England, a movement that maintained that the congregational churches of Massachusetts Bay Colony ought to support the further reformation of the Church of England rather than separation from it. So I think we've discussed this in the past. The difference would be that there would be those congregationalists who basically declare the Church of England to be a false church and that they completely have nothing to do with it, and those who have a view to bringing the entire Church of England more in line with their own convictions from uh, that they that they perceive to be biblical. Um, and, um, of course, uh, just in, in recent weeks, we've seen that the Church of England is actually a firm same-sex unions, and um, it's the long line of a of a very tragic history that you've seen in the in the Church of England since their rejection of the Puritan movement, and leading ultimately today, where even those who um, would even agree with an Anglican polity in other parts of the world, like Africa, declaring that their their own mother church is is now formally apostate and and wanting to separate from them. Mm. Um, yeah, I mean, I, uh, I think that when, uh, yeah, what you're seeing in any case that the, um, the Ames is laying that foundation, which I think we've already talked a bit about. Let me finish this paragraph. The Cambridge platform of 1648 in particular reflects Ames's thought. Then too, his Ramism was equal was eagerly embraced and became characteristic of New England Puritanism. Cotton Mather called Ames, quote, that profound, that sublime, that subtle, that irrefatigable, yea, that angelic doctor. Are you familiar with the Cambridge platform, uh, Michael? I've heard of it. You'll have to tell me more about it. I, I don't know much about it. I was hoping you could could tell me. Um, but yeah, I, my understanding, it's one of the um, the statements of congregationalism in that time. I've read a little bit of Cotton Mather. I have some of his books uh, on my shelf. Um, a fascinating figure. Have you read much of read much of Mather? Oh, not much beyond just surveys of church history. Yeah, I've looked a little bit at some of his um, writings. Obviously, he um, he talks a lot about the history of the of the um of new england uh congregationalism the the plymouth colony and the sort of development of uh of the society there and um i've not read it very deeply but i know enough that it it's a very important very insightful work and uh you see there that he's he obviously has strong words for uh about Ames. very appreciative of him by the way, is it is it still used much today that we call people doctors of the church? Um, he uses the phrase the angelic doctor, and uh, it's not much used uh, today. Yeah, I don't find that beyond technical use among people who study historical theology. I mean, doctor just means teacher, but obviously today it's our term for a physician. Hmm. So there's confusion, even if we wanted to bring back doctor for a teacher in the church. It, it might be difficult because of how we use the word now. Teacher is the idea. Not just any teacher, but one who holds the office of teacher. Hmm. 
who is a minister, but one who, in addition, teaches other ministers and usually is employed in writing theology as well. Hmm. Now, do you regard that as a distinct office? I think there's been some discussion about about that. Um, for example, Calvin saw that as a distinct office from pastor, and obviously there's there's uh, yes. different takes on it. Yep. Yes, I do. It's pretty common in Reformed Orthodoxy to see it as a distinct office. And I think it fits with most Christians' understanding and perception of how things are in the church. We all know the difference between a pastor and a seminary professor. We recognize their similarities, which are obvious. They're both ministers. And yet the seminary professor, while he might do all that a pastor does, he does more. More that a pastor doesn't and can't do. So I, I do think practically most Christians understand and appreciate the distinction, whether they affirm it explicitly in their own conception of church order, there might be some disagreement. But I do think it's a it's a fairly practical thing. You see it in the Jewish church as well. Their rabbis held the office of doctor. Very good. All right, continuing on here. Ames's influence was also great in the Netherlands, where he became known for his opposition to Arminianism. He influenced Dutch Dutch thinking in many ways, especially in his development of casuistry, which we've talked about. It's the study of the conscience and cases of conscience, so basically ethical teaching. That is how to deal with specific cases of conscience. Gisbertus Vutius, professor at Utrecht and leader of the Dutch Further Reformation, was profoundly influenced by Ames's ideas. So I believe that it was last episode, if I if I remember correctly, we had a lengthy discussion about the um, about the Dutch Further Reformation, and I and I believe we referenced the name Vutius. Um, but I don't know if we, we talked much about him. Um, uh, do you want to speak a word about his significance in, in history, Michael? Are you very familiar with him? Or? Yeah, I know a bit about Vitsius. I would like to learn more. Mm. I have some desire to do further study on the man himself. He was a, a 17th century professor, doctor, taught theology at the academy which would become the University of Utrecht in the Netherlands. And he was the father of practical theology, appreciative of the British Puritans. And the Second Reformation movement you mentioned is often considered as Dutch Puritanism. But in terms of the definition of theology and its practical focus, very similar to Ames. One of Vutzi's students was Van Maastricht, and Van Maastricht wrote a lengthy systematic theology that I'm assisting with the translating of, and it uh, is very clearly influenced by Ames. So these Dutch practical theologians, they uh, had a great debt to Ames. And uh, the very next sentence, Michael, it actually refers to Van Maastricht. It says, uh, Petrus Van Maastricht, another renowned Dutch writer, was also heavily influenced, he sorry, also drew heavily on Ames, particularly his covenantal th 
thinking and casuistry. Yeah, myself, I I, I know Vutius's name obviously, and um, I'm I'm a, more familiar with his students. Um, Herman Witsius was one of his students who wrote uh, the Economy of the Covenants between God and Man, fantastic work of classical um, reform orthodoxy on on the matter of the covenant of grace and the covenant of works and the covenant of redemption and uh through uh, the labors of michael and, uh, and others uh now appreciating uh the newly translated and published works of van maastricht who it's also a very wonderful uh, rich systematic theology um yeah maybe i'll i'll uh uh, pause there for a moment, Michael, because I think as we progress through our study of aims, we'll have occasion to maybe draw on, on some of your background reading in Van Maastricht. And um, so one of the the things that it draw that it's noted here is that it's especially his covenantal thinking and casuistry that influenced ben, Van Maastricht. Would you agree with that? That um, uh, so let let me let me put it this way. It seems to me from reading Ames that the covenant uh, and a covenantal structure is very important for organizing and systematizing all all else in theology. Um, that's that's an observation I'll make about Ames. I'm less familiar with Van Maastricht, but would you say that that element carries through in in what you're seeing in Van Maastricht? I hesitate to answer just because of how loose the word covenantal is. You know, so people use it very broadly today. I'm not sure in what you read exactly what it means. Yes, the covenants of redemption, of works, of grace are very prominent in the Maastricht. I can't say that's different than other Reformed writers of his time. He does, however, have a lengthy treatment of the dispensation of the whole covenant of grace spanning from Adam to the end of time. And that's, we talked about that last time, I believe. But so I couldn't say in particular what Ames's influence was on those things. Um, I'd be glad to, to learn more about that. But I don't know Ames nearly as well as I know Maastricht, so that's one reason. Another reason is though Maastricht is very influenced by Ames, he doesn't always cite him. He does many times. But there are places where he'll quote, and we've discovered even verbatim, where he might give one citation of Ames in one place, but the quote extends much further than maybe indicated. And that was just standard. There was nothing untoward or improper about it. They didn't have our exact modern expectations for citations but he wasn't stealing. Um, but it's evident that in many ways, Ames and Maastricht. Now on casuistry, yes, I can testify to that. The last portion of in Maastricht's theology is a moral theology and what he calls an ascetic theology or theology in exercise, in, in practice, in which he looks from various different angles at the whole of the Christian life and the application of theology, the living for God that is required of theology. And if I recall, Master explicitly states his debt to Ames about that. Whether it's explicit or not, it is true. It's clear in that. And then 
as far as just citations go, Maastricht is citing the narrow often and explicitly. He's citing often uh, Maastricht's book, excuse me, Ames's book against Bellarmine. Um, Bellarmine innervated, that is having his nerves taken out. He's uh, dissected, as we could say. Bellarmine was a great Roman Catholic apologist. And basically, Ames destroys his case for the papist faith systematically. And Master draws on that. But then also his book, Cases of Conscience, or Conscience with the Power in Cases Thereof. Many citations from that. So, yes, the, the influence is extensive. Wonderful. And uh, whenever I think about his uh, work against uh, Robert Bellamine, I, I haven't read that that book, but I'm, I'm familiar with uh, part of the introduction where he says that uh, everyone in his own day was so afraid of Robert Bellamine that it was like Goliath taunting the armies of the Lord. And um, so I always uh, think of that as Ames uh, taking up the, the slingshot against the great giant who everyone was terrified of. Um yeah, I, I think that uh, you are right, and and I, one of the things I'm looking forward to is comparing uh, what I think is some of the clarity about the about the covenant theology that you see in our right in our um, in our fathers with I think uh, unfortunately some of the, the bit of sloppy thinking that prominent promulgate, promulgates today that I think that the, the term covenantal is is a bit um, is is thrown around to mean all sorts of things that was not intended by our fathers nor as it can be proven from the from the scriptures i think that uh, the way i intended it was ju was just that the way he organizes uh the um the work of salvation it, it's uh the covenant features very prominently and he organizes things along covenantal um lines in the sense that you have the promises of the lord and the unifying character of them is the is the covenant of, of grace the the new testament um and um yeah i think i think that uh yeah you are right that that'll feature um in our in our discussions going forward you know, one thing i did want to mention since we are throwing around all these names one that is not mentioned here but when I'm a bit more familiar with would be the Christian's Reasonable Service by Wilhelmus Abrakel, which is also part of this uh, movement. I think I may have just mentioned his name, but his uh, seminal work, of course, is the Christian's Reasonable Service. And having having read um, both um, the uh, the marrow of of Ames and that, I think there are also echoes of that, um, both in the um, in the uh, the the stressing of practical Christianity and experimental religion, but as well uh, just some of the, the 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 ways in which he approaches theology, and I think in some ways uh, the Christian's Reasonable Service may be a good introduction to al almost anyone who's going to pick up a good uh, systematic theology. Um, some some of the other works might be a little bit harder to d dive into, but. Um, that that's also a really important work to have on your shelf and and very accessible, I think, as far as these things go. Are you familiar with that work, uh, Michael? Oh yeah, I know what you're talking about. I've not read a lot of it, but yeah, it's much like Ben Maastricht and its practical thrust. Mm. Very good. 
when nearing the end here, so nearly all of Ames's books I read here are were printed in the Netherlands, many in Latin for the international scholarly community. The marrow of theology and conscience with the power and cases thereof were soon both translated into Dutch and reprinted at least four times in the 17th century. Ironically, Ames was least influential in his homeland of England, although there too, he was considered Perkins' most imp uh, important disciple and heir. Ames's major works were widely circulated and influenced Calvinist theology in England throughout the 17th century. His marrow was particularly highly esteemed by the Puritans. Thomas Goodwin said that, quote, next to the Bible, he esteemed Dr. Ames, his uh, marrow of divinity, as the best book in the world. So very strong words uh, from Thomas Goodwin. And um, whether or not we we would give it that much uh, praise, certainly it's uh, one of my favorite books, one that's probably influenced me more than any other. And uh, that's the the reason we're, we're going to getting into it. Um, yeah, so um, any comments just on what... It, we've read there about his influence. It is sort of striking that in his home country, he didn't prove to be quite as influential, although he was somewhat influential. Um, but it's really in New England and in Holland, he gets the most impact. That's not a not a surprise. How about Scotland? It's not without honor, except <laughs> in his own country. Yeah, I think I quoted that that verse uh, earlier on our discussion. How about Scotland? Are you familiar with anyone in Scotland or the or the Presbyterian tradition referencing referencing Ames directly? Or? I'm not. Yeah. No, I couldn't say one way or the other. Well, if he influenced Van Maastricht, and you know, and Van Maastricht influenced people like John Edwards, then I guess you yeah. you could say that he's indirectly influencing pretty much everyone uh, through yeah and van maastricht himself was appreciated in scotland among many of his students like ames he was not it appears very appreciated by net students in the netherlands in his own hmm. in his own town funny how that works i'll reference this book as well and um it may be the case michael that uh, not everyone has occasion to preach through the heidelberg catechism but um uh, i find this this work to be very very helpful. This is Ames's um, uh, work on the Heidelberg Catechism. And uh, you might say, well, how could a, a good Puritan like William Ames preach through the Heidelberg Catechism? And of course, you might be aware that there are different approaches on exactly how to do that. Well, you'll be happy to know that Ames did not uh, depart from his Puritan roots um, in his own uh, context, even though he uh, was asked to, or maybe he volunteered to preach through all of those Lord's Days um, that are arranged systematically in the Heidelberg Catechism, as uh, is customary in the in the Dutch Reformed churches. What he chose to do was to simply take a text that would uh, be illustrative of the main doctrine of that Lord's Day and to draw out specific um, doctrines from that texts that were appropriate and then to draw up specific applications. Um, I mean, realistically, it's it's a bit more like his sermon notes, I think, than his, his full sermon. But uh, what I found 
very helpful about it is just understanding more his own uh, thinking, like how it is that he goes from the text, giving a brief exposition to the doctrine, and then from the doctrine to different uses of the text, whether of admonition or of instruction. And um, I'm not, not suggesting that you would you would be that clinical about it if you were preaching, but the it, it's more uh, giving the preacher a way of framing these things in his own mind so that it's orderly and structured and geared towards a very practical, um, useful purpose in your preaching. Um, yeah, I don't know if you've had a look at that, Michael, or if you have any thoughts about catechism preaching in, in general. I haven't seen that book. I've heard of it. Um, I think catechism preaching can be fine, just like topical preaching can be fine. I think there would be a question of the proper imposition of church authority on the local ministry, whether it's proper to impose the catechism structure, especially when it's done every single year. Mm-hmm. You know, the um, I agree with the Scottish Presbyterians and their opposition to the imposition of the prayer book. Doesn't mean that there was nothing good in the prayer book, but there was a, a problem with it being imposed. There's a proper liberty to the ministry that I think is not not honored as it should be in impositions like that. We could talk more about that, I'm sure. But the principle of the thing, using the help of a good catechism to organize sermons, even using it as a topical guide in preaching, it's fine. I mean, Thomas Watson is a great example. His, his three books, well, Banner publishes them as three books, Body of Divinity, the Ten Commandments, Lord's Prayer. It's a topical, it's a series of topical sermons through the shorter catechism. And he doesn't always have a text. At least there's not always much exposition, but it's very biblical. And I think that's possible. So, Absolutely. I don't think, don't think we're, we're very far apart at all, Michael. And, and a worthwhile topic and maybe someone, something we'll follow up with in particular um, on another occasion. Well, Michael, I've really enjoyed the, going through this biography of William Ames, and I'm even more excited now to uh, be getting into the substance of his work. And so I trust that uh, shortly we'll be beginning uh, book one, chapter one of The Marrow of Theology. Um, and uh, so that's a motivation for all our listeners to go to RHB or go to Amazon, wherever you need to, to pick up a copy of the Marrow of Theology so you can be following along with us. Um, how do you feel to have reached this historic uh, point, Michael? Good. I'm, I'm good. I'm looking forward to it myself. Very good. Well, any concluding thoughts before we wrap up this episode this week? No. Very good. Well, listeners, uh, as always, we commend you to the Lord, ask that the Lord would bless you, and we'll be praying uh, for this episode and that it would be instructive for you. Until next time, uh, God bless. Bye now.